Yeah. 
may turn to Mark chapter 6. As we're speaking this morning, you may still hear doors opening and closing and people preparing food in the back. We do have pot providence today, so I hope you'll stick around and visit and eat with us. Take advantage of the food and the fellowship. We are in Mark 6. Now, I mentioned last week that this is sort of a dividing point in the Gospel of Mark. The next section of Mark, Jesus is concentrating on explaining things to his disciples, preparing his apostles to know the gospel, to be ready to go out and preach. And it's interesting that he starts that enterprise by giving them the ability, the power to go out and cast out demons and heal people. And then we're going to read this morning a bit about John the Baptist and how it was that he was ultimately beheaded But then Mark records that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then he records that Jesus walked on water. And at the end of that, well, starting at verse 51 of Mark 6, it says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Interesting, huh? Because you would think that after seeing Jesus walk on the water, after seeing 5,000 people fed, and then later it's going to be another 3,000, he's going to do the fish and the loaves thing again with another crowd of people, you would think after having the ability to drive out demons and to heal people, And then to come back, in verse 13, they come back and they tell Jesus what they've done. And they announce how even the demons are subject to them. You would think, after all that, they would have genuine faith in Christ. But Mark takes the time to say, but they don't. And you're going to see it time and time again through this section of Mark. That Jesus is going to explain things to them like... I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again in three days. And yet we know the end of the story. After three days was up, he rose again, and there was nobody there. There was no one waiting on him saying, well, we knew you'd be back. This is exactly what you said, because they just simply could not believe. This is a demonstration, I believe, of the absolute depravity of human beings left to themselves, The same way in the Old Testament that God was able to tell Israel, this is what I'm like, these are my rules, do this, and then they just couldn't. The same way that Paul in Romans 7 talks about human incapability, that the law is good and right and holy. The problem is me, because I just can't do it. Where I would do good, evil is present with me. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Well, the same thing here where you're going to read that human incapability prevents these guys from understanding what they're dealing with in the way they're dealing with Jesus. Why? Because it hasn't been Pentecost yet. Jesus keeps promising them that the Holy Spirit is going to take up habitation in them. 
He even tells them to wait in Jerusalem until that happens and don't go out and preach until you're imbued with that power from on high because they're going to get it wrong left to themselves because they get it wrong constantly despite the fact that Jesus is in their midst showing them constantly and telling them constantly who he is and what he's doing. They still just couldn't understand it. Now, through the years, I've heard people say, I wish I had lived in Bible times. I wish I had gotten to see Jesus do miracles because then I'd really believe. The evidence from the Bible is, no, you wouldn't. You'd be just like everybody else. You would not believe because you cannot believe unless the Spirit of God causes you to believe. This is one of the reasons, I believe, that Jesus responded to the Pharisees when they required a sign, when they said, show us a miracle and then we'll believe. And he said, a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Because he recognized, he understood the utter incapability of human beings after the flesh, even if someone rose from the dead, they're still not going to believe. Even if someone does these kind of miracles, even if someone looks them right in the eye and says, look, scripture says that Messiah is going to die and rise again. That's me. I'm Messiah. I proved it by my miracles. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. They can't believe it. They don't believe it. So recognize this as yet another example of even though Jesus is teaching them faith, teaching them to trust him, nevertheless, they simply can't. No matter how many times he says do it, they can't. Because no matter how many times God told Israel, do it, they just couldn't. That's why they just didn't. So all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the honor for the capability of any human being and the salvation of any human being has to go to God. It has to be completely his enterprise Because it's demonstrated here, as we're about to see in the next few chapters, that Jesus is showing them who he is and what he's about, what real power looks like, what authority looks like. And they end up still not believing because, as Mark said, their hearts were hardened. They were kept from understanding it until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes into them. And then they recognize all the things that they were ever taught He brings back to their memory all the things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus did. That's why they didn't write their Gospels until after that event. Because then they were capable of recalling all of this and understanding these things and teaching these things. So Jesus is preparing them. He's putting these things into their minds and their memories. They don't get it now, but he knows they're going to get it because he's going to leave and send his Holy Spirit to remind them of everything he said. Understand what's happening? Now, the very first thing that he does, starting at verse 7 of chapter 6, the very first thing he does is send them out specifically to drive out demons and to heal people. And he gives them some instruction that I just find 
fascinating because it's really counterintuitive in so many ways. Uh, I'm going to travel to Chattanooga this week. Janine and I, I have learned the hard way from the Texas trip. Between the two of us, we don't travel light, I found out. We cram the car full of stuff, including all our food and our supplements and our cooler and our... Oh, and our suits and our clothes and our bags. and our, The car was just packed full to the point where while we were in Texas, she bought something and I said, where are you going to put that? How do we take that home? The car is full. So anyway, Jesus is about to send out his apostles and he says to them, take nothing. Take nothing with you. Don't take a change of clothes with you. Sandals in those days wore out all the time. Walking on those dirty, dusty, rocky roads, sandals broke all the time. He says, don't take extra sandals. Now, it was very typical for people who were traveling to take what were known as scripts, uh, Old English were beggar's bags. And he says to them, don't take bags with you. Don't take beggar's bags. Don't take clothes. Don't take shoes. Don't take food. Don't take a cooler. And it's the desert. Don't take a cooler. Don't take anything with you. Go and do what I told you to do. Go and drive out demons and heal the sick. And if they don't provide for you, brush the dust off your feet and leave. Okay, so what's the assumption behind Jesus saying that? The assumption is, When you freely give these people this power that I am freely giving you, when you go and drive out their demons and heal their sick, they are going to give to you. They are going to provide for you. They are going to take care of you. And if they don't, move on. But when you come into a city, you're going to stay in a house. They're going to provide for you. If you need sandals, they're going to give you sandals. You need another robe, they're going to give you that. You need food, they're going to give you that. Now, I think this establishes a principle right away here, Jesus talking about providing and giving again. Here at GCA, I don't do a lot of talking about giving, mostly because you can turn on the TV or the Internet any day, and you can see religious charlatans begging for money, using cheap tricks and tactics to get money out of people. And I have never wanted people to assume that GCA or Jim personally is in it for the money. And so I don't really talk about money. But when it comes up in the text, I do talk about money. Because I am convinced absolutely and completely that the Bible says that you should give. That is part of what it is to be a Christian. And Jesus gives commands to give, and Paul talks extensively about giving for the support of the gospel and for the support of gospel teachers. Let me show you a a principle that was pointed out while I was in Texas, and I kind of made reference to it a couple of weeks ago. Turn to John 15 for just a moment, Jesus speaking. Turn to John 15, keep your finger there in Mark 6. But I made reference a couple weeks ago to, isn't God enough for you? 
One of his proper names is the enough God. He is the satisfying God. And so I said, if you actually love God, then you will not neglect him and you will do the things that he says because that is part of what it is to be Christian. I think sometimes people get confused when we say grace, 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 because we're talking about soteriologically how people are saved. We know that theologically the answer is grace. It's all grace. It has to all be grace. But we should never let the grace of God make us believe that we are not under obligation to God because Christianity has obligations attached to it. And if you have a Christianity that doesn't require you to live like Christians, well, then it's not Christianity. That's some aberration of what Christianity is because genuine New Testament Christianity has a lot of commands. This morning we sang, trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you believe that? Or when you sing that song, do you think, well, we're under grace. That doesn't mean anything to me. Well, here are Jesus' words. Pay attention to this. Starting in John 15, let's start at verse 10. No, let's start at verse 9. Genesis 1-1. That's an old joke that I brought out of the archives. And and it's still funny. I know. (laughs) Starting at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Okay, so there's unity there. Do you think God loves his Son As often as he would show up and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Obviously, God has a great deal of love for his son. And the son says, the same way the father loves me, I love you. Okay, that's really hard to get a hold of. That Jesus, all omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, took the time to bestow his love on you individually and that he equates his love for you with the love that God has for him. That's an astounding love. So now that he says that, now that he says, I really love you, he then says, stay in my love. Abide in my love. That's the end of verse 10. Well, it's the end of verse 9 as well. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you abide in my love now you might ask the question and and well you should how how do I abide in your love how do I stay in your love I like your love I'm happy to be in your love how do I abide in your love well he answers that question in verse 10 if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love Just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. Now, every one of us would agree theologically. We would agree that Christ satisfied the law of God on behalf of all his people. So Christ kept the father's commandments. And for that reason, he says, I stay 
in my father's love because my father said, here are the commandments, and I kept the commandments. That is a demonstration of my love for the father. I keep his commandments. I love him. He loves me. And he equates it with, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, first, Christianity contains commandments, commandments from Christ, including when he said a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Okay, that wasn't a request. That wasn't a good suggestion. That was a commandment, he said. Now, notice that Jesus also made a differentiation between God's commandments, which are the law of Moses, which he satisfied, and his commandments. His commandments are the things that we see because he is the new lawgiver. His are the higher, better commandments that would be impossible for human beings to keep were it not for the Spirit of God inspiring us to keep his commands. His commandments are not grievous. They're actually good for us. He puts these commands in place for our good. The same way that as I was raising my children, I would tell them yes and no to things according to what I knew was good for them. I'm sure that Kellen doesn't say yes to Mia every time she wants candy. Maybe you do. I'm just guessing that. But you know what's good for her. And so sometimes you have to say no to her. Okay, well, that's a command from Kellen to his daughter. And she obeys him because he loves her and she loves him. Even though she may uh, stomp her feet and kick and scream a little bit about it, the end result is she does it because she knows her father loves her. You get the picture? So Jesus himself has said the way you abide in his love is by keeping his commandments. And so here Jesus is laying out principles And the first principle that he lays out for his apostles is don't take anything with you because the people who you heal, the people who you drive demons out of, the people who you talk about me, they're going to provide for you. They're going to take care of you. Now, the Bible, like I said, says a lot about giving. It's just assumed that if you're a Christian, you're going to give. It's just assumed that that's part of what it is to be Christian. And yes, you should give to the poor. And yes, you should give to the needy. And yes, you should take care of each other. You should do good for everyone, especially those of the household of faith. All of that. But the Bible also says that you should react exactly the way Jesus is saying react here. That if someone is among you, one of his sent ones is among you, and they're doing good for you, giving you freely what you need, that your response is that you should provide for them. Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 9 and establishes a similar principle. He says, if we have sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So here's the principle again. Which is more important in this lifetime, the spiritual stuff or the physical stuff? The physical stuff is going to burn. The physical stuff you leave behind when you leave this planet. And even Jesus said, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So the spiritual stuff is the important stuff in this lifetime. 
Jesus has provided you with the spiritual stuff, which was provided for you freely, freely from God, freely from Christ. And certainly that's been one of our principles here at GCA, that we freely provide all the teaching, the books, everything on our website. We don't charge for anything here at GCA. But the response is that you will respond both graciously and generously. And Paul's question is, if we've provided you spiritual things, what does it matter if you give us carnal things? If I'm hungry and you give me food, what's that compared to the fact that I just saved your soul from eternal condemnation? How do you compare the two? So Paul would draw that equation. Starting in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 13, he says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar. That was part of the law. God, as soon as he gave the law to Moses, separated the Levites, picked a high priest, put them into service, and then said that of the sacrifices... That Israel was not allowed to touch and Israel was not allowed to eat. The priests could. The Levites could. So those who serve in the temple and those who serve at the altar eat from the temple and the altar. The sacrifices that are brought to God provide a living for those people who serve God. So Paul applies it and says in verse 14, So also the Lord has directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Same exact principle. It's not anything that Paul made up in the New Testament. It was established all the way back in the law that those who do the work of God should make their living from the work of God. Galatians 6, starting at verse 6, the one who is taught the word, okay, so that's a category of people, those who are taught the word. Here at GCA, I have said repeatedly through the years, If we haven't taught you, if you don't get what we're talking about, or if you just come to visit us for a week or two and you didn't really gain anything from it, you haven't been taught, we don't pass a plate and we don't expect anything from you. You shouldn't give to GCA if GCA hasn't taught you. But if you've been taught by GCA, you owe GCA. The Bible says so. The one who is taught in the word is to share, that's koinonia, to joint communicate, is to share a little bit of stuff with the person who teaches him. Does the text say that? No, Paul goes all the way to, you should share all good things with the one who teaches. So, again, something that I said years and years ago, that I guess is worth bringing up again because hopefully none of you except Jennifer will remember it because she's always been here. I said you, you pay where you eat. We all understand that principle. If you go out to a great steakhouse and you eat a great meal, when it's time to pay, you don't go to McDonald's and then pay their wage. You pay where you eat. Same kind of principle here. Paul says, if you're taught, you pay the one that taught you. Now, I'm very much in favor of supporting poor people, supporting your local church, giving to the needy, all of that. But there are folk online who, after they go to church with their local community church and good forum, 
They then come back and listen to GCA to get their theology straight. That's what they tell me. Okay, well, according to what Paul just said, you should also be paying, should be contributing in order to help GCA continue that work that you found valuable. Giving is just an exchange of value. Okay, Todd's got shoes on. And thank goodness Todd has shoes on. Thank you. Really. Why those shoes and not some other? Why can't I go up to him and go, what are those? What? It's an old internet meme, never mind. Um, why those shoes? Because at some point, Todd decided those shoes were the shoes he wanted to wear, and they were worth it to him. At some point, he walked into a store and said, I want to try those shoes on. You try them on, they fit. He walked around and Yes, how much are these? However much they were. 50 bucks. Okay. He paid the 50 bucks because those shoes were worth it to him. You get what I'm getting at? What's this worth? We're, we're preaching the word that is the very word of eternal life. And we give it away week by week, month by month for years and years now. And so folks come to the website or show up here at GCA because they want to hear that word. The question Paul asks is, what's that worth? Let the one who is taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches him. And then do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. I heard a preacher just this morning because somebody had posted him on Facebook and I was eating my eggs and I, I okay, I'll push that button. What has he got to say? And this guy was harping on God is not mocked. What a man sows, he's also going to reap. And he says, let me tell you how you mock God. You mock God by sitting and not doing his rules and by not following no, that's not the context. The context of verse 6 and 8 are both about giving. So I would guess that the context of verse 7 is about giving. And he says, the one who is taught ought to share in all good things with the one who teaches him. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can just kind of play with this Christian thing. That's why I kept stressing a couple weeks ago, is God enough? If he is enough, then act like he's enough. Live your life like he's enough. Live your life like you love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't be deceived because God is not mocked. In that context, then, what he's saying is if you just take, 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 and you don't give anything, that's a mockery of what Christianity is and of what God has done for you. Whatever a man sows, this he's also going to reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, in other words, everything that comes to you, all your money, all your food, all your clothes, you just constantly use that for you, but not for the good or the benefit of anybody else. The one who sows to his own flesh will, will from his flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. How do you sow to the Spirit? Let's say you like that idea. Yes, I need to sow to the Spirit. How do you sow to the Spirit? Paul just told you. The one who's taught, share materially and all good things with the one who teaches. That's the answer. 
1 Timothy 5, and then I'll get off this topic. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the scripture also says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So there's just no question that the Bible across the board talks about the necessity and the importance of giving as part of the Christian life. I said all of that in order to say Jesus sends out his apostles. He gives them the ability to heal the sick and cast out demons. And in the process, right away, first priority teaches the necessity of giving. It's all part and parcel of the very first thing he does with his apostles. The first time that he's not doing the miracles, the first time that he sends them out and says, now you go do it. He says, and if they don't give to you in response to the free gift I've given you that you're going to give them, if they don't give to you, wipe the dust off your feet, pronounce a curse and leave. Well, really then, how important does that make your giving? How important does that make the response? If you can hear these things, if you can understand these things about what God graciously did for you in sending his son for you and saving you from wrath and bringing you into eternal life, if you can hear all that and your response is, eh, well, then it's time to kind of brush the dust off our feet and, and move on. The response ought to be not only I love this and I love Christ, but I'm going to abide in his love and I'm going to follow his commands as a demonstration of the fact that I do love him. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, you are here. I almost said, am I alone up here? But my wife pointed out the other day that every time I say that, I technically am alone up here. So, okay, so now that was all introduction. All of that was introduction. Now let's start reading in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 7. He summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, a walking stick. They were allowed to take a stick to make the walking more balanced and easier. But that's it. Don't take any bread. That means don't take any food with you. No bag, no script, no beggar's bag. And no money in their belt. Not only do you not get to beg for money, you don't get to take money with you. So no change of clothes, no change of sandals, no money with you, and no bag to beg for money. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics, two coats. Don't put on two changes of clothes. Just wear one change of clothes. And he said, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet 
for a testimony against them. So what does he mean when he says those who don't receive you and those who don't listen to you? The receiving would take what form? Well, it would take the form of they provide you a house that you could stay in. They provide you food because you didn't bring food. They provide you whatever you need. Sandals, you need sandals. They provide that. They give you money. You didn't take any money. You don't have a beggar's bag. Notice also that Jesus never sets up a scenario where the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ is something that leads to begging. And far too often I see these preachers on TV begging and making God out to be a beggar. But if God is God and he indeed owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he indeed made the entire universe and owns the entire universe, what does he really need from you? Your giving doesn't improve him one bit. So that means that your giving doesn't improve God. God is teaching you to give because you need to learn it. You need to have that ingrained into your Christianity. But never, never is Christianity supposed to be something that causes people to beg because your response is going to be your response. You're either going to respond graciously. You're either going to respond generously. You're either going to respond to exactly what the Bible says and what God has done for you, or you're not. And if you're not, Notice that Jesus doesn't say, go back and beg them. Go back and plead with them. Go back and do more miracles. Go back and keep doing it until they believe. No, what he says is, if they don't believe, walk away. And brush the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Notice what they preached. They did not go out and preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That hadn't happened yet. What was John's baptism all about? How was John's baptism described? Repentance. A baptism of repentance. That's the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. Being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the likeness of Christ's death is very different than the baptism of repentance. So all they could preach at this point is that men need to repent. Men need to change their ways. Men need to bring themselves back into the things that God has already said, the things the prophets have already laid out, what the Pentateuch already says, what the scripture contains. Men have to turn from themselves and turn back to God. That's what they went out there and preached repentance that word repentance I've defined it before as a 180 degree turn all it means at its root is to turn from this over to this and so you're turning away from whatever that was over to whatever this is and that turning that change is what they went out to preach you need to change you need to return to God and away from yourself. And they were casting out many demons and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Isn't it remarkable that they could do that, that they had the authority and the power to do that and that Mark could still write about them later, but they didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened. I find that fascinating. 
But then as a result of the 12 going out in teams of two, and notice Judas was among them. I find that interesting. Notice while they were out doing it, the king Herod heard about it. And when Herod heard about this, because the name of Jesus had become well known, the people began saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, that's really bothersome to Herod. Because he's the one who killed John the Baptist. He's the one who didn't like that John the Baptist called him out over his wife because he had his brother's wife. And John the Baptist says, it isn't right, it isn't lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then she is so resentful of that fact, she constructs the scenario that leads to John being beheaded. And then these miracles show up in your kingdom and people start taunting you with, it's John the Baptist, he's back. You killed him, but that's why he's here. Da, 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 da. Others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So he's thinking very superstitiously. He's believing that this is all about him because it's happening in his region, in his kingdom. And he's believing that the man he killed has been sent back to gain some kind of vengeance on him. And now Mark is going to tell us why Herod would think that. And he's going to recount the story of the killing of John the Baptist. And it goes like this. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, and she could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. That had to be some dance. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you even up to half of my kingdom. And when she went out, she said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And her mother, the one who hated John so much, said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Because she thinks, I've got him now. He's just sworn in front of all his nobles and all the dignitaries and all the people. He has just sworn that he'll give you whatever you ask for. If you go in and ask for the head of John, he has to give it to you or he's going to lose face. And the king doesn't like to lose face, so ask for the head of John. 
So immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That, by the way, is where we get that phrase, his head on a plate. That's what she's asking for. I don't just want his head cut off. I want to see it. I want you to have it brought in here on a plate handed to me so I can see he's really dead. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Here, mom, I made this for you. Here, here's the head of a dead guy. So when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus And they reported to him all that they had done and all that they had taught. So that's the background story of John the Baptist, just so that there's no confusion for Mark's reading audience about why it is that Herod leapt immediately to the conclusion, this is John the Baptist risen again. Because he knew John was a righteous holy man, and he knows that he killed a righteous holy man to please the daughter of his wife because of a particularly good dance. And he figured, this is God sending that holy man back to torture me. That's why he's here. So a lot of those kind of traditions grew up around these miracles. And a lot of unbelief grew up along these miracles. Which I think is why Jesus would say, even if you have miracles, you're not going to believe. A wicked, adulterous generation requires a miracle to believe. Because there was all kinds of superstition that grew up around the miracles. So when the apostles gathered themselves with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and all that they had taught, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. You can imagine that. Once Jesus starts the miracles, not only are there crowds, but it's a non-stop crowd. It's a non-stop flow of people requiring things from him, expecting things from him to the degree that he and the 12, who all have the ability to heal and drive out demons between them all, there's not even time to eat. So Jesus finally says, let's get out of here. Let's go to a quiet place. Come with me. And they went away in a boat to a lonely place by themselves. Is it worth saying that sometimes it's just necessary to get alone by yourself, just you and God, and just think about the things of God, think about the word. It's good to be busy in the work of God. It's good to be busy in the work of the gospel. That's all good, but sometimes you can burn out. Elder Ward said to me years ago, we don't ever get tired of the work. We get really tired in the work. And sometimes you need to just get away and pray to God. And so that's exactly what happened. Now, I've got five minutes, so we're just going to keep reading for just a moment. Because 
No sooner does Jesus get in the boat with the intention of going to a lonely place that the people saw them going and many recognized them and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of him. He just wanted a moment alone with his apostles. But the people, the people figure out that's him. They recognize him. They chase him down. He gets no rest. When he went ashore, he saw a great multitude waiting there for him. When he gets off the boat, there's another great multitude. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, The place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. What's he doing? Why would he say that? He knows they're in a desolate place. He said, come with me. We're going to a desolate place. He knows there's no food there. And he knows there's 5,000 people there. And they say, let's send them away so that they can go into the villages and eat. And he says to them, you feed them. What's he doing? He's testing their faith. Do you think we can do this? Do you think we can handle this? You're with me. I've got this. Who are you going to trust? He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and then give them something to eat? They're still in the flesh. They're still thinking, oh, okay, so you're telling us that we should go take money, whatever money we have, all the money we have, and we should go spend that on bread in the surrounding villages so that we can come back and feed them? Is that what you're asking us to do, Jesus? Because we can do that. That's physical. That makes sense to us. We can go somewhere. We can buy bread. We can feed them. Is that what you're telling us to do? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. And he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. And they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before all the people. And he divided up the two fish among all of them. And they all ate and they were satisfied and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. In a couple of chapters, we're going to hear about another 3,000 that he's going to feed in the same manner. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all record this, that Jesus does feed multitudes with loaves and fishes. It is demonstrative of who he is, the ability he has, and the love and compassion that he has. And despite that, Mark would write, and they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So that 
pretty much tells us what the human condition is like. That also tells us what the disciples were like. It also tells us that if you saw miracles today, that would not be enough to convince you. If you lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and saw Jesus doing these miracles, that would not be enough to convince you. There's nothing that's going to convince you of who he is and for you to put your faith in him and trust him with your eternity, there's no way that's ever going to happen unless God himself puts his spirit in you so that you come to faith in Christ. You see it time and time again in the Bible, not only theologically, but here we just read it in the story of the apostles themselves not being able to grasp what Jesus was about. Make sense? Yes. All right. Questions? Yes, ma'am. When you said that God didn't need our money, I, I agree with that, but I also think that it can glorify God that you're trusting him for this amount of money. And they talk about principalities and powers, and I, I feel like we glorify him in front of those Yes, absolutely. I purposefully wanted to kind of move on back to the Mark stuff. I, I could talk for Sundays and Sundays about the necessity of giving. And yes, it glorifies God when you trust him with what he has given you. What you have is what he gave you when you take things back to him and sacrifice them to him. That glorifies God. And there are not many ways in the Bible that we're told how we can please and glorify God. But Paul likens our giving to a burnt offering, a sweet savor offering in the nostrils of God. Well, if you know that there's something you can do that will please God to that degree, that it's equatable with the Old Testament sweet savor offerings, if there's something you can do that glorifies and makes God happy, then you would want to do that. And the Bible says giving does that. So I, that's why I put it under the heading of, is God enough? Do you love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength? Well, then you would do the things he commands you to do and abide in his love. It just seems basic to me. It seems, seems obvious. Anything else? Yes, sir. Not only did the dance play a major part in the death of John the Baptist, but so did the prideful spirit of a king who thought he could give anything he wanted, and then he opens his mouth without thinking first and makes the commitment. And that's all as much involved in the death of John the Baptist, too, of speaking without thinking first. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the Bible from speaking without thinking, isn't there? Yeah. I think there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in all our lives when we speak without thinking. Yes, sir. It says in uh, the beginning of Mark 6 that they were astonished, and then like two sentences later it says they were offended. But I know astonished doesn't necessarily mean pleasantly astonished. Yeah, uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago that it's, it's a word that means to be struck with awe. Okay. So it's not necessarily a positive thing as much as it is, I've just encountered something I don't understand, and it's made me just awestruck. And so they could, with that definition, they could see him walk on the water. They thought he was a ghost. They thought it was a phantasm. Then he gets in the boat with them after walking on the water. They're awestruck by it. 
but even though they're incapable of understanding it, they still end up not getting it, according to Mark. So, yeah. Anything else? Good questions, good comments. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.